Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 3, verses 3 through 6. Brother Matt Thomas will be our speaker, and the theme of this message is God Builds a House, Hebrews 3, 3 through 6. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. morning. In this week's readings, you will encounter another monumental moment in the history of man. And it'll have to do with this David as you read through Samuel's letters, Samuel's chronologies from the little town of Bethlehem. Larry uh, chose that song uh, because he knew we were going to be discussing some things that surrounded David and consequently Jesus Christ. Uh, Both are from the town of Bethlehem. So, it all began in the garden with that subtle, sublime promise of God really to Satan He promised that there would be one who was born of the seed of woman. Uh, Someone in the human line who would come and would be a savior from man's sins committed against God. He would destroy the power of death that Satan held. We don't have to go very far in the Bible, just to chapter 12, from chapter 3 to 12, but we go through a lot of history there as far as time is concerned. But we only come to chapter 12 before we see the second major phase of this promise, and it's narrowed down a little bit. Watch how it it narrows down. Now God promises a man named Abraham that one of his offspring would be the one who would bless all the families of the earth. And that he would use Abraham to begin to bring about this one through his lineage. And that became a whole nation of people. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we come to another monumental moment where God says, okay, it's going to be a human being that I'm going to work through. It is going to be someone of Abraham's lineage, and now specifically a family. We're going to neck it down to a family, and it's going to be through David. And so, one born of David will be ruler of all Israel, but there's some unique characteristics about this one that he reveals to David for the first time. And as is the nature of prophecy, as we read through the Old Testament, we we receive more and more detail. Uh, we, we receive more to keep us on the edge of our seat, 
Israel was on the edge of their seat, wondering what this would be like, wonder, wondering who he would be like. Um, and, uh, and so eventually we come to the one called the Christ. But we really need to focus on this today for several reasons. And so I want you to uh, tune in to 2 Samuel 7, if you would, in your Bibles. And uh, we'll pretty much stay parked right there, do a little reading from that chapter. But from the first verse of the New Testament, from the angelic announcement to Mary, on through to the last week of Jesus' life, from the first gospel sermon of Peter through the preaching of Paul to the Gentile world, it appears that this foundational teaching that Christ would be the son of David was really important. It would identify Him. This chapter in 2 Samuel 7 is an identifying chapter as to who Christ would be. And if we miss this, we, we miss not only a great testimony to Christ and a faith-building fact that this is the, the one of prophecy from of old, uh, but we will miss some characteristics about Him that are really important for us to know about as the church. So when David has been established as king of Israel, and the land rested from war, and the civil order of the nation had come to some stability, all Israel is gathered to David as their king, David gets a big idea, gets a grandiose idea. He wants to get God out of this tent that he's been in, in the wilderness from Egypt all the way till now, while he looks around at his beautiful home of cedar, which the king of Tyre helped him to build, sent the supplies, erects this nice home for David, and uh, he's living in Jerusalem now, and, and he looks out at the tabernacle and he, he gets an idea and he says, it's just, this isn't right, I think I'm going to do God a favor. And so he has this idea that he's going to build God a house. But watch what happens. In uh, the first nine verses, read along with me. In the first nine verses, we'll read, Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, 
and have made you a great name like the name of one of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Well, so much for David's grandiose idea. There are two things that God wants to clarify to David here. The first is that God is an abiding presence. He does not need a house to live in. In fact, Yahweh is a God who lives with His people and among His people. If you're going to be in a tent, I'm going to be in a tent. If you're going to be wandering in the wilderness, I'll be wandering in the wilderness. If you're going to be suffering, I'll be there suffering with you. If you're going into battle, I'm going into battle. And so you see, when David had this idea that, well, I want to build you a house, that God says, have I ever asked anyone to build me a permanent home? That's not how I dwell. <laughs> My presence is what matters. Not until Israel's kingdom is established and its borders reach the point of the original promise. Now here's something that you may have lost in your readings, maybe forgotten about, maybe you thought it was fulfilled. There is another part, there's three parts of that promise in Genesis uh, chapter 12, verse, verses 1 through 3. One is that I'll make you into a great nation, that He has done. Two is that I'll give you a land. They had not yet extended to the borders where God intended them to extend. That won't happen until David's son Solomon, when they finally reach their borders up to the river Euphrates. Five times the Euphrates is mentioned in those promises. From the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, they didn't come close to that under Joshua. David extends it yet farther through his power, but it is Solomon who actually extends the territory up and fulfills that. That's just a side note. But this is why he makes mention of this I will give you a place. Well, I thought they were in it. <laughs> they hadn't yet developed uh, or, or extended those, those borders yet. So there's still a little piece of that second point of the promise to fulfill, but it's this third part of the promise that is the great promise that affects us most directly. And that is, how is He going to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's seed, somebody born in Abraham's lineage. That's what we really want to trace out, but I thought that was a very interesting point. I had forgotten about it until it came to this point where he said, not done yet. Well, he went with them wherever they roamed. And that is a truth. I just want to stop for a moment and say, it's not the main point of the lesson, but if that's the only thing that you took away today, it'd be worth it. And that is, God goes where you go. And Jesus said, they'll say that the kingdom of God is here or there, but the kingdom of God is within you. I am dwelling among my people, and wherever you go, I am. And that's where the border of the kingdom is. And if someone's in the outermost parts of the world or in the deepest, darkest jungles, that's where the kingdom is. That's how it broke up into pieces and consumed all the other nations, Daniel said because it was within the hearts of people who carried that message of hope of that great king with, within them. But the second 
uh, thing that God wanted to clarify has to do with David's successes. God not only says, David, I don't really need a house. I'll let Solomon do that later. But I want you to understand that you were a shepherd among sheep. And when Samuel came into your father's house, your father gathered all the brothers together and you were out in the the sheepfold with the sheep. I took you from there and made you a shepherd over my people from following sheep to leading men. By the grace of God, God did not allow David to build a temple in his glory days. Lest David, lest the people say, by David and his power and might, God has established his kingdom and David has built this great temple for God. He didn't want them to have the opportunity to, excuse me, to trip up over that. And so by His grace, He passed that off. What God needed from David was to let God build David's house first. You see, David still did not know that God had intentions to build him a house until this moment when he gets this big idea and is just going to go off and set off to do it. And God came to Nathan and said, now hold it. I've got to explain some things to you about my grand plan that has to do with all mankind. David may have well appreciated this poem by Martha Snell Nicholson. I found this. I thought it was very appropriate. It's called Treasures. Listen to this. One by one he took them from me. Speaking of God. All the things I valued most until I was empty-handed Every glistening toy was lost. And I walked earth's highway, grieving in my rags and poverty, till I heard His voice inviting, lift up those empty hands to me. So I held my hands toward heaven, and He filled them with a store of His transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last, she wrote, I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour His riches into hands already full. There's a tremendous point there. And David needed to empty his hands of human business, conquering, building. I'm going to build God a temple now. God just said, just empty your hands. I have blessing to bestow upon you, and you won't receive it if you're not focused on receiving from me. David didn't need to do God a favor. To do any great work, God needs us to have open hands as well. And this grace, I might add, is radically different from any other religion of men. In any other religion of men, men say, when we do this for God, when we build Him a great temple, or her, or it, when we build this great temple and do these things, then maybe we'll be able to call their blessings down upon us. I'm just going to let you think about that for a minute. Run a few religions through your mind. When we do this, we will earn that. Think about that. The God of grace says, no. I will build for you, then I will bless you. And there's a number of things that men, you think, may do to stop God's promise from happening, but nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop His gracious 
plan from unfolding. Yahweh isn't the same. And David, we're not going to read it, but in the second half of this chapter, in his prayerful response, his humble response, where it sank in, forever God? My throne established forever. When it sank in, he said, there is none like you. There's none like you. So, the Lord will build David a house first. Let's read chapter 7, verses 10 again. Through 17. God said, Moreover, I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, here's the pivotal point. Also, what's more? There's more than this. Also, the Lord tells you, David, that He will make you a house. He'll make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name, and I'll establish the throne of His kingdom. Now see the difference in terminology here, forever. I'll establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be His Father, and He shall be My Son. If He commits iniquity, I'll chasten Him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but My mercy shall not depart from Him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Surprise! God doesn't like his idea of building him a house, but he has an idea instead that he will build David a house. And I say that it's always the case that God must first build a man's house before man can try to build a house for God. Think about that. God must build your house first before you can expect to build anything for Him in return. But this promise has a dual fulfillment, as is often the case in the prophets. There's an immediate application, and that would be this son is Solomon. But there's also a meaning here that David picks up on and says he's speaking of much more than just my son building him a temple, which happens. In fact, this promise will transcend the generations. He said that that it's possible that this son may sin and need the chastening of the Lord. He's speaking there of Solomon. And truly what happened was that this human dynasty of David, it, it did not last but 500 years, which is tremendous through the people of Judah. But it didn't last forever. There was actually a point in time, technically you could say 586 B.C., when Babylon carried Zedekiah and Judah away captive to Babylon, exiled the southern kingdom. That's when David's human dynasty officially ceased to exist. And so David, thinking, yeah, it's not the nature of kingdoms, he would know. It's not the nature of kingdoms to last forever. 
I mean, they come and they go. Rulers rise and fall. I will fall perhaps someday. Or this idea of forever is tremendous. And so he picks up on it and carries it out. So there's, a, there's a, a, an immediate application to the temple that would be built of cedar and stone and gold. But this other temple he's talking about and this sun that he's referring to is also language that is picked up on from here forward. David would be dead and buried. He's thinking, okay, this sounds really exciting, but he said, when you rest with your fathers, when you're dead, okay, so I won't be around when this happens. Death won't stop God's son from building a house. Okay. David picks up on the fact that <clears throat> this descendant could be chastised. Well, okay. But God said, I'll still establish a throne in Judah from your lineage forever. Sin will not stop God's son from building him a house forever. David's dynasty, as I spoke, ceased about 586 B.C. Time won't stop God's Son from building him a house. God will call this descendant of David his son, and he'll be called by him father. And man will not stop this son of David from building a house for God, because he is also the Son of God. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 2, right? Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? I want you to plug modern-day America and this postmodern world in which we're living into this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying... Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Verse 12 of Psalm 2 says, Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. The psalmist predicts long before, men better learn to accept this plan and this reign of this king. He's a forever king. He's the son of God. And pity those who plot vain things to try to thwart his divine promises. Jeremiah puts it this way, as far as his unstoppable promise-keeping ability. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will not be the day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Jeremiah 33, 20 and 21. If you can, if you can somehow stop the day and night from happening, then you'll also be able to break my covenant with David Then I'm going to put a son on the throne forever. That's, that's pretty solid, isn't it? He means it. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. It doesn't matter. What men do, he's going to still fulfill the promise somehow. And so as we get into the prophets, what you'll see is the prophets calling Israel back to God for their own sakes. All the while, God will still fulfill His promise. But he's, they're pleading personally to the people of God to come back now and enjoy the temporal blessings of the promise. You see, 
these promises of God, there's a temporal nature to them. You being a Christian, for example, comes with great promise in this life. Jesus said, in this life there will be blessing for you. But the great reward is in heaven. There are, pro uh, there are blessings to enjoy immediately. And there are blessings that we can lose immediately. But whether I obey or not is not going to affect God's ability to save you if you want to obey. And if I became a president of the United States and I directed the country in a direction away from God, you can still be saved. A man cannot stop that from happening. And so, this unstoppable theme and why I called it a, a monumental point in the history of man, not just in the Bible, not just in the, the Jewish nation, but for mankind as revealed through the Bible. David, knowing the power of that forever promise, prays, You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord my God. See how it registered? This is a, every version I looked at of the Bible, and I looked at about 20 different translations, said something a little different. Yet they all said the same thing. It's a difficult passage to translate for the, for the uh, translate, translators of the, the Old Testament. One said, it is the law for man. Another said, is this the manner of men? I like this from the uh, ESV where he says, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. This is for all men. So you see this promise that started in the garden channeling down and down and down. Now, follow with me. We'll briefly go through and look at some facts here in the New Testament. What's the first verse of the New Testament say? The whole New Testament, first verse. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why? I can think of a lot of different, more dramatic ways to start out a book as dynamic as the New Testament as the book of Matthew, I want to identify first that this is the one who was promised in 2 Samuel 7, as we know it, to David. Secondly, in the angelic announcement, Luke records this in chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Gabriel says to the Virgin Mary that she'll conceive a son and that he will be great and He'll be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God, listen, will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. Doesn't that uh, make it clear? Matthew chapter 12, verse 23. During His ministry, the blind and deaf, interestingly, interestingly were continually asking and Him, uh, asking if this was the Son of David and and uh, acknowledging Him as the Son of David to heal them. That's very interesting to me that that was the address that they used on three occasions, the blind. And I think to myself, they couldn't see anything about Him physically with their eyes, so they were acutely tuned in intellectually to the Scripture. And here the Pharisees were walking by in, in hatred and, and scowling and in unbelief, because they didn't like what they saw. But the blind who couldn't see Him 
said, this must be the son of David. That, that just stopped me in my tracks when I saw that repetitive nature from the blind. And then we come down to uh, Jesus talking with the scribes and Pharisees. And he asked them, the Christ, whose son is he? And they answered, the son of David. And he said, well, how then is it that David, if he's his son, called him Lord? For David said, the Lord said to my Lord, I will make your enemies your footstool. How did the father call his own son Lord? Doesn't make sense, does it? Unless David, prophetically, through the Spirit, understood that the one coming from my own body was going to be Lord ruling forever. He was ushered into Jerusalem in his final week with cries of Hosanna to the Son of David, Matthew 21. The apostles understood the Son of David to be the Christ, who is Jesus. Peter, in the first gospel sermon on Pentecost, addressed him as such. Paul, in his address to the Romans in chapter 1, concerning Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Right in there with the power of the resurrection is the powerful fact that this is the one who fulfilled the prophecy of a thousand years ago. The Son of David. Matthew 1.1 Matthew writing to the Jews wants to start right out and mince no words about it. This is the one I'm proposing to you. And so, we come down to the Hebrew writer, and we find that he acknowledges also that there is a house that God will build. Now, let's leave 2 Samuel 7 and finish in Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. I hope one of the things you're getting from these lessons is seeing the unification of the Scriptures. Oh my. 66 books, we say. So much, so different, hard to understand. One storyline, one narrative, different ways for us to understand it. So the Hebrew writer says, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also is faithful in all his house. For this one, our scripture reading went, this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Now listen closely. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things that would be spoken afterwards. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. Whose house? This is your takeaway. Don't miss it. Elbows if needed, please. Whose house we are. We are. Second Samuel 7. It's all about us. Just go ahead and shut it off, guys. Just shut it off. 2 Samuel 7 was with us in view. 
as is every one of these lessons that are coming from the Old Testament. Are you seeing it? It's a beautiful thing. Paul wrote to the church uh, through Timothy. And he said, Timothy, I, I write so that you might know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We are, Paul said, therefore, no longer strangers and foreigners. We have identity now. I have an identity as God's child. He says, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're in a family with God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Peter said, coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Do you see the temple God had in view when David said, I want to build you a house. I'll let Solomon build a temple here. All right, we got to finish part two of the promise, but I'll let him build a temple I want to tell you about the house I'm going to build for you. And here is Peter and Paul. Spiritual house, living stones being built up together. No wonder John said, what manner of love has the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God? What manner of love is this? If Christ is only a Savior, then Christianity is an individualistic thing. We don't need to be together this morning. We could have arisen from our beds had breakfast, sat down by ourselves or with our family and worshiped God at our own tables. But He's a king. And a king has a kingdom. And a kingdom means fellowship. A kingdom means togetherness. A kingdom means it's not about me anymore, it's about we. It's, it's not I, it's team. I'm a part of something special. And God has invited us into this household where we as children should consider treating each other like this if we are to inherit this promise. Colossians 3, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ also forgave you, you must also do. But above all these things, you ready for the mortar? Here's the mortar holding the stones together. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It's going to hold the stones together in the spiritual house of God, which came through Christ, through David, through Abraham through that promise originally stated in the garden. And then he said, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. I strongly encourage you to pick up from verse 17 and read the rest of 2 Samuel 7, because what you're going to see is a, a, a beautiful heart thanking God for this promise. That's all David realized now that he had to do, was just open his heart, open his hands, and let God do the building. By grace we are saved. The life we give to Him is, is a life of thanksgiving in return. We can't earn any of this. Christ already died for you. God wants us to be thankful. 
God wants us to worship Him in the beauty of holiness. God wants us to be saved from sin. Look at all He has done to bring us to this point. And so I want to call you this morning to be saved. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, be saved. For the promise is ours if we hold fast our confidence firm to the end. Let us endure. Larry, let's sing this song. Let's